Hello and welcome to another edition of Holy Crap It Sports. I'm Pete Davis, your host, and it's a lovely Wednesday afternoon here in beautiful downtown Sandy Springs. I hope everybody's having a great time tonight. We have so much to talk about. A lot of breaking news coming down late this afternoon. Looks like Matt Moore of the Tigers is going to be out for the year with his arm troubles. Plus, we're going to be talking about news about the Braves' closer issues. They have a season-ending injury. And Craig Kimbrell. Can anybody say Kimbrell? The A's dynasty of the 1970s. Let's say the underappreciated athletics dynasty. Freak injuries of baseball to go along with Blake Snell's crazy bathroom incident. The Mets, Matt's miserable moment against the Phillies. Chris Sale sucks, and he knows it. Have a Dodger dog and a broken ankle. Bench-clearing dance today, uh, MLB team in Mexico on a permanent basis. Could it happen soon? Kristen Yelich, meet Lou Gehrig, and this day in baseball history. It's all on Holy Crap at Sports coming up in just a second. In fact, right now, let's get it started. By the way, you can always follow me on Twitter at PeteDavis1. That's at Pete Davis, the number one. Or you can email me, PeteDavis1 at Yahoo.com. That's PeteDavis1 at Yahoo.com. Well, breaking news this afternoon. It looks like Braves right-hander Arotis Vizcaino elected to undergo right shoulder surgery up in New York City. Dr. David Altchek performed the procedure of the New York City Altchecks. Good people. Uh, he cleaned up uh, Vizcaino's labrum while also removing scar tissue from the right shoulder joint. The right-hander will miss the rest of the regular season. He's just 28 years old, went on the 10-day injured list on April 14th, appeared in only four games this season for Atlanta, allowing one run earned in four innings. So he's gone. I didn't think they'd ever win anything big with him anyway. But now they really need a closer because A.J. Minter may not be the answer either. He was injured during spring training. They kind of rushed him back a little bit, uh, according to some people. And uh, he got rocked last night and uh, gave up pretty much the winning run to the Diamondbacks as the Braves' bullpen blew a 5-2 to lead in the seventh inning. Chaz Sabaka who is now going to take over the moniker of Flop Sweat from the newly demoted Sean Newcomb, who's back in Gwinnett. Sabaka was kind of like the Johnstown flood. The floodgates opened. Hit some people, walked some people, sat down on the bench. Good news for the Braves, though. Uh, They're playing the Diamondbacks later. Brian McCann, the catcher, is back. He is back tonight in the lineup, so catcher Alex Jackson has been sent down to Gwinnett. So what are the Braves going to do about their closer situation? And TalkingChop.com does a great job covering the Braves and the minor league Braves. Uh, says General Manager Alex Anthopoulos has met with the media prior to the game uh, tonight uh, against the Diamondbacks at SunTrust Park in Atlanta to discuss what's going to happen. He says it's pretty dire. Uh, Sam Freeman was let go before the end of spring training. Darren O'Day made just one spring appearance and then shut down because of soreness in his forearm. Minter began the season on the injured list. Hasn't really been himself. The team placed left-hander Johnny Venters on the injured list. He may be over. Over, uh, at the moment. Uh, internal options could include one of Atlanta's young starters. Anthopolis discussed the need to keep guys like Tuki Toussaint and others stretched out at the start of the season because of the amount of injuries the team was dealing with in the rotation. But with Kevin Gosman back, he starts tonight. And Mike Fultonewitz nearing a return, hopefully, for the Braves. The team might consider transitioning one of the starters or more into a bullpen role 
and uh, we'll see what happens. External options include, of course, free agent Craig Kimbrell, who remains available. His asking price has reportedly dropped in recent days, but it remains to be seen whether or not the Braves are willing to meet his asking price, and that's not all. In fact, there was a chant going last night at uh, SunTrust Park in the ninth inning when the bullpen was imploding uh, like a black hole. Uh, some of the fans that were still left there were chanting, we want Kimbrel. Well, here's one slight problem with that, according to Mark Bowman of MLB.com. If the Braves, he tweeted, were to sign Kimbrel, they'd lose this year's 60th pick and the $1.1 million bonus pull allotment attached to that slot. Facing strict international market limitations until 2021 because of past problems, uh, that slot money is very important as they have both the ninth and 21st picks this year. So, reading that, I don't think we're going to see Craig Kimbrell here unless there's a total collapse in the next couple of weeks and Kimbrell has yet to be signed. Rumors going around today uh, that the Brewers are still very interested in him. Uh, Some more good news for the Braves. It looks like Mike Soroka, who looked so good last year before uh, his shoulders started acting up, will start Thursday's series finale against Arizona in Atlanta. Uh, There's been no formal announcement whatsoever, but it looks like that could be coming soon. It's interesting that the, uh, the guy at Talking Chop call Soroka the Maple Maddox. I think there's a Canadian issue there. Uh, Mark Bowman also tweeted about Ozzy Albies, who's doing very well. He's back in the leadoff position, doing very well in that uh, situation, like he should. Albies' game-tying homer in the seventh last night made him 21 for 62 with three doubles, a triple, and two homers from the left side. That's just so far this season. And what that means is Pretty good, because last year, from the All-Star break on to the end of the season, Albies was just 26 for 161 with seven doubles, a triple, and two home runs from the left side. So he's already pretty much equaled or passed what he was doing all of the last half of last season from the left side. A lot of people say, well, maybe he should just stick to the right side and not be a switch hitter. But he looks like a switch hitter is going to be around for a while with Ozzie Albies. And that's more interesting to see a switch hitter up there. I've always liked switch hitters. Mickey Mantle, Eddie Murray, Chipper Jones. Uh, here's something that came out yesterday. Tim Andrews tweeted this from the 1974 baseball tweets. On this date, and this is uh, talking about Tuesday, April 16th, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, and Sal Bando hit home runs against the White Sox knuckleballer Wilbur Wood, who once started uh, both ends of a doubleheader, by the way. I think he was a lefty knuckleballer, too, wasn't he? (laughs) The Athletics beat Chicago 4-3 at Oakland Alameda County Stadium. Raleigh Fingers got his first save of the season. Okay, this is 1974. The A's had won the World Series in 72. Uh, They beat the Reds. They won the World Series in 73 by beating the Mets. And you got to believe. And they won. And they were going to win in 74 against the Dodgers. So they were just at the end of their great three-year dynasty. All right? The the attendance that day at Oakland Alameda County Stadium, 3,641. 
That's pitiful. Well, I told you about Blake Snell of the Rays. He's going to be out a while. The American League Cy Young Award winner last year fractured his right fourth toe when he was dancing around his bathroom trying to move a big granite piece of furniture like an idiot. Well, there's other things going on, uh, freak injuries that have gone on in baseball over the years, including just last year. Sean Kelly of the A's, you might remember, sliced the tip of his right thumb, and that's the part of the thumb that he releases the ball on delivery on a sharp knife while he was washing dishes. His thumbnail was the only thing that kept him from slicing the top of his thumb off. And you got to wonder what would have happened to his pitching. But you remember that Mordecai Three-Finger Brown, who had lost a finger and mangled his hand in a farming accident, I believe, a long time ago, uh, pitched very well with a different kind of fingered hand. Also last year, Salvador Perez of the uh, Royals missed four to six weeks with a tear of his MCL in his left knee. He fell carrying luggage up of a flight of stairs at his house in Kansas City. In 2016, Trevor Bauer of the Indians had an injury that may have changed the history of baseball for that World Series. Uh, One of the biggest images of the postseason was Bauer's pitching hand dripping blood on the mound of the ALCS series. Well, he had a run-in with his drone. The Indians pitcher cut his right pinky finger, uh, fingering, I mean, sorry, repairing the drone, which was sliced by propellers. He tried to give it a go in game three of the ALCS, but his stitches opened up in the first inning. He had to leave the game because of the bleeding. Had Trevor Bauer not cut his finger, would the Indians have won their first championship since 1948, ending their drought, and would they have kept the Cubs on their 100-plus year drought? I think that if he'd have stayed and pitched, I think the Indians win that. Uh, 2011, Jeremy Affeld of the Giants. Uh, first of all, the lefty reliever cut his hand while trying to separate frozen hamburger patties for a barbecue. The next season, 2012, he sprained his right knee when his four-year-old son jumped into his arms. Jeremy Affeld cloud hanging around him. 2010, Kendris Morales of the Angels. And here's a career-changing injury. A joyous moment that quickly turned into concern. Morales belted a walk-off grand slam to lift the Angels over the Mariners May 29th, but then he broke his left ankle in the celebration at home plate. He jumped up and down and stomped his feet and he broke his ankle. He would not only miss the entire 2010 season, the rest of it, also the 2011 season and had to have several comebacks. He did manage to come back and he's had a decent career but not the great career he probably would have had. Uh, 2006, Joel Zumaya of the Tigers, his rookie season, throwing 100 miles per hour. The right-hander injured his right wrist while playing Guitar Hero, a video game. He missed three games. But he went on and did very well that year. Uh, it was funny that the, for Xbox's 360 version of Guitar Hero 2, Zumaya got a special message in the credits. It read, no pitchers were harmed in the making of this game. Except for one, Joel Zamaya, he had it coming. <laughs> 2005, Clint Barmas of the Rockies fell and broke his collarbone while trying to carry a package of deer meat given to him by a teammate, Todd Helton. Barmas and Brad Hopp had visited Helton's ranch after a game against the Reds, after which Helton treated them to dinner. Barmas liked the deer meat so much that Helton gave him some to take home. <laughs> he required surgery for the injury and missed three months, Barmas. On this day in 2004, not on this day, but in the year 2004, Sammy Sosa, the Cubs, <laughs> a strange moment in his career, he sneezed so hard he sprained a ligament in his lower back and had to go on the DL. Two violent sneezes. And I used to joke about this until about a year ago I sneezed and pulled a muscle. 
So it's real. The, the, the struggle is real. 2002, Marty Cordova of the beautiful Cordova leather of the Orioles had an unfortunate run in with a tanning bed. The former rookie of the year fell asleep in a tanning bed and sunburned his face. Doctors told Cordova he should stay out of the sun as much as possible until the burn healed and he had to miss a few day games. 1994, Steve Sparks of the Brewers. One of the classic feats that a strong man does is tearing a telephone book in half. Well, Sparks decided to do that for himself, spring training of 94. He was 28 years old, a knuckleballer. Why is a knuckleballer having to show how strong he is? Maybe they were teasing him. Uh, his journey to the majors delayed. He dislocated his left shoulder trying to rip apart the phone book. Pitch nine seasons, though. 1993, Ricky Henderson of the Blue Jays missed three games with frostbite. This is August. Even Toronto, it doesn't get cold enough to have frostbite in August. Frostbite on his left foot because Ricky Henderson left an ice pack on his foot too long. Went to the Hall of Fame anyway. 1990, Glenn Allen Hill, the Blue Jays, one of my favorite injuries of all time, went on the DL. He fell through a glass table, cut himself all up, bruises to feet, knees, and elbows. That's not the funny part. Hill had just woken up from a nightmare about spiders chasing him. He's afraid of spiders, and in his confused state, he fell through the table. I think at one point he was trying to blame his puppy that he had tripped over his puppy and fell down the stairs because he was so embarrassed. Well, that's what you get when you blame a puppy. 1985, Vince Coleman of the Cardinals. Once again, an injury that could have changed history of baseball and probably did. Prior to game four, the 85 NLCS between the Cardinals and Dodgers, Coleman was run over by Bush Stadium's automatic tarpaulin, uh, injuring his leg. The tarp machine was rolling out as rain began to fall during batting practice. The 24-year-old speedster was a big reason St. Louis had reached the National League Championship Series. He stole 110 bases en route to winning that year's NL Rookie of the Year award. He would miss the remainder of the series. The Cardinals would win it and go on to the um, World Series, a very controversial, controversial World Series, which they lost to the Royals in seven games. 1983, George Brett of Kansas City, Hall of Famer, not, didn't help him this day. June 7th, 1983, at home in Kansas City doing laundry. Hall of Famers doing laundry. In the other room, the Cubs game was on the TV, on WGN, the Superstation. Brett heard the announcer saying that Bill Buckner, his good friend, was coming to the plate. And he didn't want to miss the at-bat. While running to the TV room, he smashed his foot on the door jam and broke his pinky toe and had to go on the DL. And finally, here's one you probably didn't ever hear about. 1936, Joe DiMaggio of the Yankees. Joe and Joe hadn't even played his first major league game when the crazy injury bug hit him. A minor foot injury in spring training, DiMaggio went for treatment using something called a diathermy machine, which is what they used to put on sore arms that pitchers had. Jim Bouton writes about it in Ball 4. It's a, basically a quack device, a heating device used in sports medicine. Not anymore. But the machine was too hot, and DiMaggio burned his foot, which came out red and blistered. It took two weeks to heal, and that's when he began his Hall of Fame career. Whew. There's a lot of freak injuries going on, right? We'll have more injuries in just a second, but I'm going to take a drink of some water. Or um, the Yingling, whatever it is. Uh, Mets starter Stephen Matz allowed eight runs without recording an out in the first inning of Tuesday night's 14-3 spanking at the hands of the host Phillies. That's something that's been done only five other times, what Matz did, since 1893. 
In the space of 20 minutes, Matz's ERA shot up from 1.96 to 4.96. The lefty threw just 31 pitches, faced eight batters, allowed six earned runs on four hits, including two homers. He also hit Bryce Harper on the wrist with a pitch, which got him a lot of booze there. Only the Mets, the Red Legs, and the Athletics have had a starting pitcher allow eight runs without recording an out since the mound was placed at its current distance in 1893. Now the Mets have had it happen to them twice. Uh, Metropolitan's right-hander Bobby Jones did it September 17, 1997 against the Braves. The last starting pitcher to give up eight runs without recording an out was Cincinnati's Paul Wilson back in 2005 against the Dodgers, and then Wilson did it again in 2003, two years earlier. Oakland starter Blake Stein did it in 98, and so did the A's Bill Kruger in 1984. So we got two A's that have done it, too, and two Mets have done it. Jason Stark uh, mentioned this. He tweeted that Stephen Matz had made 74 starts in the big leagues before that night. He'd never given up eight-plus runs in any of those starts, and then he gave up eight before he got an out. Chris Sale is kind of sucking right now, if you haven't noticed. I think Red Sox fans have. Uh, the ace of the Red Sox says he's frustrated as he's ever been on the baseball field. Says his uh, performance this season is flat out embarrassing as he lost to the Yankees 8 nothing in the Bronx Tuesday night. Yankees hitters lit him up for four runs in five innings. Sales' season ERA went to 8.50. He suffered his fourth loss of the year. That's his entire total for the entire 2018 season four losses sale says i just flat out stink right now i don't know what it is when you're going good it's good when you're going bad it's pretty bad boston's record they're the world series champion is now six and twelve boston's team era this season 6.09 the red sox have allowed a majorly leading 114 runs the red sox's minus 40 run differential is worst in the american league and only three runs ahead of the Marlins. The Red Sox uh, signed sale to a five-year, $145 million contract extension that begins in 2020. They signed him to that just before this season started. So good timing there, boys. And uh, this is what I like about podcasting now as opposed to terrestrial radio. Asked if the real version of him is coming, Chris Sale said, and I quote, you'd better fucking hope so, end quote. A fan is suing the Dodgers, alleging he was roughed up by security guards who broke his ankle during a game last year, and all he was doing was trying to use the bathroom. 31-year-old Daniel Atunez was seeking $2 million in a lawsuit that contends that 6 to 10, he lost count, 6 to 10 security guards jumped him at Dodger Stadium in lovely Chavez Ravine against the uh, Marlins game last April 24th. The lawsuit said he went to the game with a woman. It's always a woman behind this stuff. Just kidding. Accidentally, the woman accidentally spilled beer on another fan. Uh, the irate fan called security, and Atunia's friend was asked to leave. Well, he went with her, being the gentleman that he is. According to the lawsuit for negligence and battery, Atunia said he accompanied her, but on the way out said, I got a tinkle. And he wanted to go into a bathroom, but the security grabbed him and told him, no, you're going to have to use that other restroom further away. Well, cell phone and surveillance video shows a number of security personnel grabbing him while other friend yells, hey, he's just going to the bathroom. (laughs) Atunez went to the ground and went to the ground hard. Centurion, throw him to the ground, roughly. 
and uh, they jumped on him, allegedly. He ended up with bruises and a fractured ankle, which, and basically they handcuffed him with his broken ankle and put him in a wheelchair and escorted him out of the stadium. They had to implant screws, several of them in there. And his attorney says, it hurts him when it's cold or where he stands for a long period of time. These are permanent injuries. I thought it didn't get cold in Southern California. Another injury update, uh, Wednesday afternoon, Lucas Giolito of the uh, White Sox, his start against the Royals at the uh, White Sox field up there in the third inning, he had to leave after experiencing left hamstring tightness. He's described as day-to-day. And speaking of that White Sox-Royals game, they had a little dust-up. Uh, Sox shortstop Tim Anderson was hit by a Brad Keller pitch in the backside, his buttocks, to open the bottom of the sixth inning. That led to the benches and bullpen clearing fracas. Anderson homered in the fourth off Keller, the 50th of his career home run, and threw his bat toward the Sox dugout in celebration. Two innings later, in his next at-bat, Keller plunked him in the ass. Both of those boys were ejected, as was Royals bench coach Del Svein. Uh The situation appeared to be under control until... Royals bullpen coach Vance Wilson and White Sox manager Rick Renteria exchanged words near the first baseline. Renteria had to be restrained before everybody was cleared off the field, and Renteria was also ejected. Jose Abreu and bench coach Joe McEwing quickly restrained Anderson once the uh, argument began. So this is this has had a little trouble before from these guys. Anderson and the Royals had an on-field disagreement last April in Kansas City when Anderson celebrated a leadoff homer with a reported profanity as part of a phrase to fire his team up. Catcher Salvador Perez called out Anderson on the celebration, causing both benches to empty. Uh, Salvador, you know, is channeling his inner Brian McCann and Carlton Fisk. The situation ended without any further problems, but obviously a little bad blood. I was watching MLB Network today, and uh, I agree with this. Bill Ripken said, you know, he likes to see this. These are two bad teams, but at least they're showing they actually care about what happens on the field, even though, frankly, a little bat flip shouldn't matter nowadays. Uh, Is there going to be a Mexican Major League team anytime soon? Well, according to the Houston Astros GM, yes. With Major League Baseball set to play another regular season series down in Monterey next month, uh, Astros GM Jeff Lunau told SportsCenter Mexico that it's very important to him and very exciting to be able to go to Mexico as a Major League team manager, or general manager, and he would like to see a team in the future in either Monterey, Mexico City, or Guadalajara. Now, you think they have high altitude in Denver, Just wait till they get to Mexico City. The ball will never stop flying. Uh, He said it's the idea of baseball commissioner Rob Manfred that they're going to expand, and several candidates, including Nashville, which the Braves probably would not love that, Las Vegas, maybe Montreal, Canada. If Montreal builds another stadium, I have no problem with the team going back to Montreal. I miss the Expos, tell you the truth. Uh, Maybe even London. Maybe Europe. Oh, that's a long time away before they go to London, by the way. By the way, Lou now, the Astros GM, was born and raised in Mexico City. He says he's going to fight to see this happen. (laughs) More injury, well, not injury news. Uh, Nick Pavetta, surprisingly, sent down. And according to Todd Zalecki, who wrote the article about it, uh, Pavetta, not happy, slamming his belongings to a a box and travel bag uh, this morning at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. Manager Gabe Kapler even pulled up a seat next to him and chatted with him, not for the first and last time it looked like. Then Pavetta got up in a huff and left. 
They've optioned him to AAA Lehigh Valley. He's 2-1 with an 8.35 ERA through four starts. Declined comment on his way out. Fellow right-hander Jared Eikhoff will take Pavetta's place in the rotation Sunday in Colorado. Boy, that's great. Here, you're going to be in the rotation. Yay! Your first pitch in Colorado. The Phillies selected infielder Phil Gosselin's contract from AAA to replace Pavetta on the 25-man roster. They need an extra position player while shortstop John Segura recovers, or Gene Segura recovers from his strained left hammy. So they hope he comes back soon. The Phillies do. Uh, Pavetta entered the season as a trendy pick to be one of baseball's breakout pitchers, whereas Inspector Clouseau would say, not anymore. Philly center fielder Odebel Herrera left uh, with today's game against the Mets with an apparent leg injury. That's the latest I have on this. Pulled up after catching a fly ball in the top of the fifth inning, Aaron Altair took his place. The severity of Herrera's injury is unclear. So it'll be interesting how the Phillies take care of that. The Cardinals held out as long as they could, but Harrison Bader's right hamstring not healing quickly enough, so they placed their center fielder on the 10-day injured list. Uh, with Tyler O'Neill on the IL-2, Dexter Fowler is likely to see more time in center field with Jose Martinez taking Fowler's usual spot. spot. And right. Meanwhile, Carlos Martinez of the Cardinals is going to throw another bullpen session Friday before they host the Mets at Bush Stadium. If all goes well, then he'll go to Jupiter, Florida to throw a simulated game at the team's spring training facility. Well, speaking of the Cardinals, they are getting pounded not by a team, but by one man. Christian Yelich is chasing Lou Gehrig for single-team dominance. Yelich is making life miserable for the Cardinals, according to Andrew Simon of MLD, and he might make some history this year. The dominance actually began last year, Yelich's first season in the National League Central from coming over from Miami. The Brewers' star smacked six homers, drove in 15 runs in 16 games against St. Louis. He went on to win the NL MVP. But Yelich is taking his ownership of Cardinals pitching to another level this year. The teams met for the sixth time Tuesday night at Miller Park. Park, Yelich went two for five, launched a three-run homer, and helped spur an eight-to-four Milwaukee victory. That came one night after Yelich went deep three times and drove home seven in the series opener. Here's the damage Yelich has done so far against the Cardinals this year. Six games, 28 plate appearances. He's 11 for 21. That's 524 batting average. One double, eight home runs. That's one in each game, at least. 18 RBIs, 10 runs scored, seven walks, two intentional. That's good for a 643 on-base percentage and a 1.714 slugging percentage. 714, that number sounds familiar. Yelich, as long as he stays healthy, will have 13 more matchups with his NL Central foe, the Cardinals, this season. Provided the cards continue to pitch to Yelich, that gives him the opportunity to chase Lou Gehrig's record for most home runs against a single opponent in a single season. How many did the Yankee have? 14 against the Indians in 1936. Second place, it's a tie between four people. Roger Maris of the Yankees had 13 against the White Sox in his great year of 61. Joe Adcock, a Milwaukee Braves first baseman, had 13 against Brooklyn in 56. Hank Sauer of the Cubs had 13 against the Pirates in 54. And Jimmy Fox, double X, of the Philadelphia Athletics had 13 against the Tigers back in 1932. Of course, back then, players only faced the seven other teams in their own league. Gehrig, for example, got to play Cleveland 23 times back in 1936. 
And I'm looking over most single-season home runs against one opponent since the divisional era, 1969, started. And number one on that list is the cheater, Sammy Sosa of the Cubs. He hit 12 versus the Brewers back in 1998. And then you got a bunch of guys tied for second on that list. 11, Aaron Judge of the Yankees, Brian Dozier of the Twins, uh, A-Rod of the Rangers, cheater, Jim Tomey of the Indians, Barry Bonds, cheater of the Giants, Luis Gonzalez of the Diamondbacks, not going to say anything, Sammy Sosa again of the Cubs, Dale Murphy, not a cheater of the Braves. He did 11 against the Giants back in 83. Willie Stargell, the Pirates, hit 11 against the Braves back in 71. And Harmon Killebrew of the Twins, uh, he did it as well. The all-time record for single-season homers against the Cardinals is 10, set by the Phillies' Cy Williams way back in 1923. Man, I'm loving the ambient noise coming in from the lovely outdoors cafe down below. You wouldn't think they'd have... 10-year-old brats running around a sushi joint, but things have changed. Uh, Good luck to Ron Darling, and it looks like good news. The Mets announced that Ron Darling's surgery to remove a chest mass has gone well, according to his colleague Gary Cohen. Uh, He said that during the Mets-Phillies broadcast on Tuesday. Darling, last Saturday, who is a longtime SNY analyst, said he had a large mass in my chest, and he hoped to return to the broadcast booth in May. Darling is 58 years old, said they've been following this for a few months. If there are no complications, I hope to be back next month. Uh, Studio analyst and former Mets player Todd Zeal is filling in for Darling during his medical leave. One more swallow here before we get into the meat of the program. Ah, thank you, Kroger Natural Spring Water. Actually, it's two Borg beer, and that's for you, Jigs McDonald. Okay, this day in day, baseball history, this was an auspicious day in baseball history. There is, let's just say, a buttload of things that happened today, so let's get started. On this date, 1904, to get around blue laws in New York City, and yes, they once had blue laws in New York City, godless New York City, the Brooklyn Superbas, who would later become the Dodgers, do not charge admission to their win over the Boston Bean Eaters, who would later become the Braves, for their first ever Sunday game. But they make every fan buy a program. Sneaky. That's how they get around the law saying Sunday is a day of worship and not for playing ball. On this date, 1913, Tigers outfitter Ty Cobb suspended for the entire season for attacking a fan just two days before. Oh, yeah, did I mention the fan was handicapped? Even though the Georgia Peach is not popular with his teammates, they still go on strike to protest his suspension, which is lifted after just one game. I'm trying to remember if that incident was portrayed by um, uh, Tommy... Lee Jones in um, the movie Cobb, which is a great movie. I don't know how true it is, but it's a great little movie there. Uh, On this day in 1925, Babe Ruth has an operation to remove an intestinal abscess. He'll be in the hospital for six weeks. That was a big thing back in 25. That wasn't an easy operation. The 30-year-old Ruth will miss the first 40 games of the season due to his bellyache heard around the world. Most fans blame Babe's overconsumption of hot dogs and soda. Mm-hmm. Soda. Probably by two Borg soda. On this date, 1929, in a ceremony that takes place at 5 a.m. on opening day to avoid the crowds, Babe Ruth marries his second wife, Claire Hodgson. His first wife, Julia Woodford, had died in a house fire in January of 29. In the John Goodman movie about Babe Ruth, they, uh, they 
paint that as uh, that she was depressed and everything. It may not have been an accident. On this day in 1939, President Franklin Roosevelt was supposed to go to the Senators' opening day in Washington, D.C., but the game has rained out. So FDR does the next best thing. He and the visiting Yankees go to Arlington National Cemetery and visit the grave of Abner Doubleday. On this date, 1945, St. Louis Brown... Oh, wait a second. Can you imagine President Trump having a rain out of a Nationals opener and saying, uh, well, can you imagine the Nationals inviting President Trump? Uh, can you imagine him saying, okay, screw this, let's go to the cemetery? Media would have a field day. On this date, 1945, the St. Louis Browns outfielder Pete Gray makes his major league debut. He got one hit and four at-bats and a win over Detroit. The 30-year-old Gray has only one arm. He lost his right arm in a childhood accident involving a wagon. On this day in 1951, before the Cubs' home opener, golfer Sam Snead tees off from home plate at Wrigley Field, sending his golf ball soaring over the 89-foot high scoreboard in center field. No word on how many people sitting peacefully enjoying a beer on Murphy's uh, Bleacher's Bar's roof across the street were killed by the flying projectile. I don't think that we'd see that happen today uh, because of one word, lawyers. Uh, on this date in 1820, 1820, Alexander Cartwright, considered by many the father of the national pastime, is born in New York City. The banker is given credit for establishing three strikes for an out and three outs for each inning, half inning, will be elected into the Hall of Fame in 1938 after a review of his journals reveals the many contributions he made in developing and promoting the sport of baseball. Huh. Uh, this date in 1869, the Cincinnati Red Stockings defeat the rival Amateurs 24-15 in baseball's first professional game. Team captain Harry Wright had put all of his players under contract, making the club that will become known as the Reds the first pro team in sports history. But not, they're not the oldest team continuous. The Braves are the oldest continuously operated franchise. The Reds took a few years off, although they are the oldest franchise. 1912 on this date, in front of a larger-than-usual crowd at the polo grounds of over 14,000 patrons that included Broadway legend George M. Cohen, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, the Giants beat the New Look Yankees, now sporting pinstripes in an unscheduled exhibition game, 11-2. Those pinstripes never really caught on. Uh, They're trying to raise money, these teams, for the survivors of the HMS Titanic, which had just sank earlier that month. The charity contest, the first Sunday game ever played between major league teams at the Coogan's Bluff Ballpark, raises over $9,000. That's a lot of scratch back in 1912. Each fan donates the price of his admission ticket to purchase a special program for the event. So, is that because of the blue laws? Uh, Sunday? I don't know. Moving on. 1934, on opening day at the newly named Crosley Field, Reds announcer Red Barber calls his first play-by-play for a major league team. Of course, the Hall of Fame broadcaster would go on to be the big guy uh, in New York City. But anyway, the 26-year-old former future Hall of Fame broadcaster, get this, had never attended a major league game before that game. It was a 6-0 loss to Chicago, the Cubs. Can you imagine today a major league ball club hiring their play-by-play announcer and he had never seen or attended a major league game? 
That's pretty cool on his, his part. 1951 on this date, Mickey Mantle batting third, grounds out to second base in his first major league at bat. The 19-year-old right fielder will hit a sixth-inning run-scoring single, going 1-4, Yankees opening day 5-0 victory over the Red Sox in the Bronx. Also in 1951, for the first time in a career that will span more than half a century, public address announcer Bob Shepard announces the Yankees lineup. The Voice of Gods, their name, not mine, introduction of the Bronx Bombers will include the memorable names of Mickey Mantle, Phil Rizzuto of the Money Stall, Yogi Berra, but the first player's name announced will be DiMaggio, but not Joe, Dom DiMaggio, the leadoff batter for the visiting Red Sox. Number one. Derek Jeter. I forget Jeter's number. Why? Because I can. 1953, Mickey Mantle blasts a reported 565-foot homer off Southpaw Chuck Staub in the Yankees' 73 victory over Washington at Windy Griffith Stadium. The distance of the historic round tripper hit by the 21-year-old Yankee outfielder will become the subject of much debate, later research allegedly debunking its original tape measure status. Your rides here. Anyway, 1956, Luis Aparicio, Don Drysdale, and Frank Robinson play in their first major league games, respectively, for the White Sox, Dodgers, and Reds. The trio of debuts marks the first time that three future Hall of Famers have made their initial appearance on the exact same day. So here's the question. You have your choice. Luis Aparicio, Don Drysdale, or Frank Robinson? I think that's a no-brainer. I'm going with Frank Robinson. Number two, as much as I love Luis Aparicio, I'm still old enough to remember him playing. I would have picked Don Drysdale second. On this day, 1969, and only the ninth game of the franchise's history, Expos hurler Bill Stoneman, who had never thrown a complete game in the majors, tossed a no-hitter, defeating the Phillies at Connie Mack Stadium in Philly 7-0. The 25-year-old right-hander, the future GM of the Angels, Stoneman, will throw another no-hit game in 1972 against the Mets. On this day in 1976, at Wrigley Field, Mike Schmidt hits four home runs in one game, including the game winner when the Phillies come back from an 11-run deficit. I remember that game. To beat the Cubs in 10 innings, 18-16. to The Phillies slugging third baseman, the first National Leaguer and third overall Major Leaguer to hit homers consecutively. 1976, at Yankee owners George Steinberger's insistence, Thurman Munson is named the team captain. The reluctant backstop is the first player to assume the role since the Bronx Bombers honored Lou Gehrig with the position back in 1935. Can you believe that? The Yankees had not had, since the 1940s until the 1970s, a captain. On this date, 1977, At Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, the umpires walk off the field in the fourth inning to protest the Braves showing a controversial play on the ballpark's new massive instant replay screen that involved Houston's Bob Watson scoring on a close play at the plate. Team executive for the Braves, Bill Lucas, what a a career he had cut short by health, uh, I believe a heart attack or stroke, persuades the crew, which includes Terry Tata, Ed Sudol, Dick Stello, and Bruce Fremming, to return to the field after assuring the babies the incident would not occur again, you poor umpires. 
bring me the robot umps. 1988 on this date, the Braves beat the Dodgers 3-1 after breaking the National League record with 10 losses to start the season. The team was going to drop 27 of its first 39 decisions, which cost poor Chuck Tanner his job as the Atlanta manager. What an optimistic guy. Couldn't do it for them. And finally, on this date in 2009, Washington's right fielder Adam Dunn and third baseman Ryan Zimmerman start the game against Florida with the word Nationals misspelled on the front of their uniforms. Majestic Athletic, the manufacturer of the jerseys, takes full responsibility for the missing O and apologizes for the mistake to everyone for saying that they were playing for the Washington Nationals. Frankly, Natnals has a better ring to it. Anyway, I'm Pete Davis. That's another episode of Holy Crap It Sports. I think it's episode number six. Uh, gosh, I'm, and I'm intentionally doing these so they're not exactly dated. So you can watch them, listen to them, watch them, listen to them two or three days, maybe two or three weeks or years afterwards, and still get something out of it, which I hope you do. And uh, please feel free to follow on iTunes. I wish iTunes was a little quicker on putting these up. Sometimes it takes 24 hours, but we're doing our best with them. iTunes, Apple Podcast, uh, on Facebook, on my Facebook page, Pete Davis, or the Kimmer Facebook Kimmer Show Facebook page, or let's see, what else? On Twitter, you can follow me at Pete Davis one or write me an email, PeteDavis1 at Yahoo.com. That's the number one in both of them. Or you can listen to us while we're still on the air. <laughs> they sold the station out from under us. Uh, the Kimmer Show is on from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, every day, Monday through Friday, Atlanta time, on Talk 106.7 FM on your radio dial. And it's not left to right or right to left. It's wherever it is, right smack dab right there. Everybody have a lovely evening. I'm going to, well, let's drink up Shriners time. Let's drink up. Tonight, I think it's going to be steak and a Dr. Pepper. And then after that, a little port and then maybe a little rye. Everybody have a lovely evening.